Welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'm your host today, Paige Niedringhaus, and we are joined by our panelists, TJ Van Toll. Hey, everybody. And Jack Harrington. Hello there. And our special guest today is Julio Zausa. Welcome, Julio. Yeah, nice to, nice to, hear, to be here. Sorry. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you here. So, Julio, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, why you're famous, and what we'll be talking about today. Well, yeah, I, I mean, famous is a big word. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a software engineer. I currently work for a company called Flux, uh, with which we are building uh, um, next generation collaborative tools to design PCB print-to-secret boards on the browser. And, oh, uh, I, yeah, I think so. And um, previously, I worked on uh, other companies doing uh, WebGL stuff, JavaScript, TypeScript. Uh, I work with React a lot. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I also collaborate with uh, some open source projects, for example, with Primandras, the creators of uh, uh, React Spring and React Fiber. I'm one of the authors of a library called the React Reflex that uh, allows you to uh, use flex layouts uh, in 3D environments using 3JS uh, and React. Oh, and, uh, and I've been in contact with uh, a lot of uh, performance delicate situation on the browser. So that's what I'm working on right now, making stuff faster, making stuff scalable. So, yeah. Well, that sounds super interesting. I'd actually love to hear more about some of the performance-intensive solutions or or um, things that you've been encountering lately, if you could elaborate a little no bit kidding. on that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially right now, in um, what I'm working on, it's this product called Flux, and we're really investing in performance because... Uh, when you're building a, um, a tool that works on the browser, you really have to build something that is not your usual web application. Because normally when you talk about web application, like a website or a simpler web application, what you worry about is the first, the, like the, uh, the, the time that takes for the page to load or uh, uh, the interaction time. And really you have different... Uh, metrics compared to uh, the ones that you have uh, when you are actually building a, an, a, for example, a 3D editor on the web. Because like uh, your, uh, uh, the scale of data that you are dealing with, it's completely different. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes web performance so hard to talk about is like it's, it's, it always depends, right? That's like our favorite line in the show. It, it depends what you're building, but like your performance tips for like, oh, I'm building something that's like a CMS or e-commerce, which is like probably the more common use case. That sort of stuff doesn't necessarily apply to, to everyone because like in a graphics context, like for the most part in a 3JS environment, you're not dealing with the DOM so much, right? You're you're sort of in a completely a completely separate world. So maybe for... For people that haven't been in that sort of environment, like what are some like what are some of like the obvious performance tips? Like if you start to venture into that world, what are some different things to think about that some of us that spend most of our time in like an e-commerce DOM centric? Yeah. Some sort of us who aspire to be in three D. Yeah, you know? <laughs> well, didn't that be great? Yeah, yeah, never do it. <laughs> if you think about it, uh, like when you're building a product like uh, um, an e-commerce or a blog, uh, uh, normally the amount of data that you have is limited. Normally, yeah. for example, you might have uh, thousands and thousands of products that are shown in your e-commerce, but uh, normally you fetch only a window on the, of that uh, uh, in your view, and the server takes care of that, and the server is already optimized with uh, algorithms and search uh, uh, to already filter data for you. Um, instead, uh, um, when you're working with something like uh, an editor on the web, uh, what you do is that you necessarily need to load your entire document uh, because uh, you have to be able to, um, in an instant, show the entire document immediately. Imagine, for example, when you're working in Figma and you have uh, a lot of uh, different canvases and uh, elements, and Figma always allows you, allow you to zoom out and see everything at once. And 
that's the difficult part, uh, like uh, showing, being able to store in memory everything and uh, show it the second that the user requires it. That's something that you don't really need on an e-commerce website because on an e-commerce website, sometimes you just uh, remove your filter, wait a, uh, a couple of seconds for the service to respond, and then you have the data. But uh, but yeah, and you, you are right when you talk about that um, we are not dealing much with the DOM. Well, actually we are, because uh, um, if you think about it, uh, when you're building uh, uh, something like we are, you both have uh, uh, a canvas that is just a canvas with which you, you are uh, basically building every part of your UI manually. But you also have uh, a lot of parts that are uh, done using DOM. For example, uh, the, the inspector in which you can enter or change properties or um, for example, we have the tree like in Figma in which you can uh, see all your elements uh, and um, and uh, select them and search around them. And that's that's still DOM. But yeah, you're right when you're talking about that uh, we will basically uh, uh, ejected from the DOM and we have one big canvas and we are doing our, everything manually. So does it become more about memory management then? Just because, like, what what are sort of the like dev toolsy things that you spend your days in looking for performance mm-hmm. problems? Is it just like raw, like how much memory is this thing consuming? Because I, I imagine, like, I'm thinking PCBs, which, by the way, uh, Paige and I work in that sort of world, so I've got a, a bunch nice. of PCBs sitting sitting That's around nice. here. So I'm picturing in my head like you got some complicated thing that I'm like moving around and zooming. So are you like watching in dev tools, like, oh crap, how much memory am I am I building up? Am I like cleaning up my objects appropriately? Is is that sort of like I'm just sort of curious what your like day in, day out, like performance workflow, what sort of things you're looking for? How how does that work? Yeah. And uh, yeah, about dev tools, the things that I'm working with most uh, is of course the uh, the Chrome profiler, the time profiler that allows me to see if I have something that is taking three seconds, what is actually doing in, this, in those three seconds. And uh, the heap analyzer of Chrome that is very powerful because it allows you to uh, take a snapshot of the heap uh, and see both uh, what are the objects that are taking a lot of space and also the retainers. Because you may have elements like op- elements in me- objects in memory that uh, are very small on their own, uh, but maybe they are referring to some other data. They have a pointer to some other data. So those objects are the reason why you have a memory leak somewhere. And then there is another very important tool that is the DUX profiler that uh, allows us allows you to um, re- press record, do some operations, and see what is happening as a React. Because otherwise, sometimes you look at the uh, the Chrome profiler, you see a lot of a big stack trace from React, and you see commit unit of work and all stuff like that, and you're like, what is happening inside there? Like, it, it's a, especially with React 18 now with the concurrency uh, mode enabled, uh, it, it's pretty hard to understand what is going on there. And so yeah, the Chrome profiler is pretty important. But uh, uh, there is a fourth tool that uh, I, I had to use in some circumstances, that is the Chrome Tracer. That is very little known. There is, unfortunately, very little documentation about it. And it's uh, uh, an internal tool that is available in Chrome that allows you to profile not only your current JavaScript uh, uh, virtual machine, but also uh, the internals of Chrome. You know that Chrome uh, uh, works by segmenting your tabs into different processes. And those processes have a lot of uh, stuff that is going on. There is not only the um, the JavaScript uh, uh, virtual machine. There is also the GPU processes that they separate. Uh, there is the garbage collector. There is the compositing. And we had a bug in which uh, we were trying to figure out why like the page during load spent exactly uh, two minutes, I think, doing work that we had no idea what he was doing. So we had the, the, a problem that the page was stuck for two minutes and uh, we tried to profile that with the Chrome profiler. And the result was that uh, there was a hole on those two minutes in which the profiler had no idea what happened. So it was a very strange Whoa, situation. that's and, crazy. Uh, yeah. Can say like, like two minutes? Because can this happen? Like if a page goes in the background, right? Like you still need to know what's happening is that 
the sort of situation you're talking about? Or like, how does it have two minutes where it doesn't know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And the reason why that was happening was not, uh, or the problem was not uh, in the JavaScript process. The JavaScript process was fine. It was just waiting. The problem was in the GPU process because uh, Chrome uh, um, handles a lot of GPU stuff uh, in a separate process. And uh, then uh, uh, that process, uh, you can you are not really profiling it uh, in the in, uh, in the Chrome profiler because uh, it's running separately. And uh, what we discovered is that the GPU process was running and allocating a ton of memory. And at a certain point, it just crashed uh, and Chrome started a new instance of that process. And from that new instance, it worked perfectly. So we knew that there was a problem that we were doing something wrong in WebGL, but we didn't know what was happening. And in Chrome, it, has this, it had this behavior that uh, it was stuck for two minutes uh, and then it started working again. Uh, in Firefox, instead, uh, you basically had to kill your uh, your Firefox systems because it would freeze up in your browser. And... Um, the cool thing is that with the Chrome Tracer, we were able to profile what was happening inside the um, the GPU uh, process. And we saw that uh, there was a lot of memory that was being allocated in the um, um, description for the WebGL uh, vertex attributes. That is a very... Uh, thing that It's a thing that the people that work with WebGL knows Maybe, but uh, if you're not, if you don't work with WebGL, you probably never heard of it. And so the problem was that we were literally allocating a, 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 a WebGL object in a loop, whereas we should have done that uh, uh, once uh, for the entire session. And mm. uh, it's pretty difficult to, in those situations because you end up with a problem, uh, especially if you have a, a 300,000 lines code base in which the entire browser locks up and you're like, what is happening? You try with a yeah. profiler and the profiler shows you a hole. And it's nice to know that there are tools at least to uh, to keep profiling from another point of view and still go on with your work. Yeah. It's interesting because I think memory, memory debugging is something that your average web developer probably has no idea how to do because it, it like very yeah. rarely actually comes up. And the only experience I have with it is when I had a stint doing native apps, because in the native world, that sort of stuff is very important, right? Because yeah. it's the yeah. sort of thing a native app can absolutely uh, doesn't want to be losing memory. And it's it's also interesting to hear that, like, you almost get into, like, OS-level debugging tools or, like, at, at the because, I mean, at a certain point, like, Chrome has some responsibility for if a rogue web app starts like using memory like crazy, Chrome's going to shut it down at some point, right? Like it's like yeah, the browser's exactly. responsibility to keep things from going out of control. So it's just sort of fascinating to hear about, I think a different paradigm that most of us just aren't familiar with, with the, the web world. So okay. that's a problem with us because uh, usually um, Chrome kills your app if it thinks that there's a rogue app that is consuming too much memory. But sometimes we have legitimate reason to allocate that much memory. So Chrome is constantly <laughs> killing us. <laughs> oh, no. Is, is, is there anything you could tell Chrome? Like, can you request, like, say, like, hey, I'm, I'm a memory-heavy app. Can I get more system resources? Or are you just kind of at the mercy of the browser? So. Okay. Yeah. I've seen a lot. Me. I've... Um, I try to um, look uh, into it a lot, uh, but there is a lot of contradicting information about how much uh, Chrome allows you uh, allows you to use RAM, and uh, it changes from version to version, from operating system to operating system. So the uh, it's not easy to do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, so from a regular person's perspective, well, or like not per regular person, but like you know, e-commerce or whatever. So are there unit test tools or testing tools that you, you apply to your app on a performance level? I'm, I'm kind of curious around, like, so you can track version to version, make sure, oh, yeah, you check that in, and oh, my God. Yeah. Now we're, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, we try to do some of it. We try to start with performance, performance testing. Uh, which is actually a cool concept uh, in which uh, you have your unit test that you normally, uh, for example, you have uh, your functions that you use for uh, uh, operate with data and stuff like that. 
And what we try to do is to uh, run those uh, unit tests a lot of times and see how, uh, how much time it takes. Do we know, for example, that if we have a function that is an host hot path, for example, something that happens every frame, we know that we want that function to take uh, at most three milliseconds. The problem is with that is that uh, it's very dependent on a lot of stuff. It depends right. on how the garbage collector is feeling on the com- on the destination computer, and uh, and ul- ultimately it's not too important because. Uh, um, if you're trying to analyze the single functions, then you maybe figure out that that function never actually mattered uh, and that there is, was something else that was uh, slowing, slowing down everything completely. So um, actually, the way that we're tracking that right now is uh, by doing analytics uh, oh. with amplitude. And um, so uh, we know that this is um, more of a crowdfunded way of doing it but uh, what we uh, try to do is either do it manually and check that uh, for every release everything is speedy even with bigger projects with bigger documents or uh, we take for all the from all the environments the pre-release environment the production environment uh, all the data that we can uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, instrumentation in the code that is constantly sending uh, uh, performance information uh, of course anonymized and uh, so the moment that we have uh, a user uh, for which uh, a document loading is taking more than uh, uh, a certain amount of seconds, we're going to find an alert, fire an alert, so that uh, our team knows that there is something wrong going on there. And also, since we want to track uh, how well we're doing with performance for each PR, we are uh, also using other tools such as the Bugbear and uh, the said amplitude with which we can uh, keep track of uh, uh, the average frame rate uh, and if there are some obvious outliers there that's really cool (laughs) yeah absolutely that is really interesting so one question that i had is are you building all of this in javascript or in react or are there some other maybe closer to the metal frameworks that you're using or or programming languages to make this stuff so fast yeah, um, mostly most of the core code base is in TypeScript, and um, the we of, we of course have some modules that are written in WebAssembly, but not much for a performance reason. But because we wanted to integrate with some libraries that uh, they were originated written in C, uh, especially uh, the some libraries regarding the simulator. And uh, other stuff like uh, um, operation on polygons, uh, and the only reason why we're using WebAssembly there, and it's because uh, we're using libraries that uh, originally were written in C or C plus plus or whatever. So uh, we are trying to keep most of our code base uh, in JavaScript because actually that's the closest to the metal that you can get on the web. Because of course you can switch to WebAssembly. But uh, WebAssembly, it's something that if you don't do it right, it's going to be slower than JavaScript. And uh, like uh, you can get very close to the metal with with TypeScript already. And if you like, the reason why you would want to use WebAssembly is either because uh, you want to use some libraries that you can't use in JavaScript otherwise, mm-hmm. uh, like a C one. Or um, if you want to uh, literally obsess over memory management, like uh, if you write in a language like C++, uh, you um, you can basically write your memory allocation uh, the, um, routines, uh, and uh, you can like if you start allocating everything statically, then you can be of course much more memory efficient. But uh, um, it's something that requires an entire team of people that knows how to write to C, C++, or Rust code. And uh, you're going to have a very hard time debugging it. And uh, it's not something that really you would recommend for, uh, for a startup that has less than 100 employees. Because the moment that you uh, start uh, working in uh, Rust or C++, you really open a Pandora box of stuff that could go wrong and you have nobody that is able to understand what is going on there. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I like that way of thinking about it because it's 
it, it's it's in a way it's the sort of traditional trade-off, right? JavaScript, of course, if you write everything in raw C, C++, sure, you have the potential to write it faster, but then you have to write it in raw C, C++. And you have to write it faster Rust. because yeah. it's very easy to write C++ code that is low. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because some, like, Figma is sort of famously using that sort of approach at scale. But then again, like if that that's sort of their niche, right? So if you come in, if you have a team that that's what they know how to do, or maybe they've, they've got some graphical tool that's written using that tech stack and wants to bring it to the web, that might be the better approach. But if your skill set is more yeah. web associated, then it seems like that would be a pretty hard path to go down. Yeah, I mean, if you got a few people from like Photoshop team, not that that happened. But yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hypothetically, just hypothetically. Yeah, and and still Figma is using React. Uh, I know that uh, Figma internally is using the, uh, Web uh, WebAssembly for the rendering engine. Yeah, and that was because it actually Figma comes from uh, another time uh, from from basically ten years ago, uh, in which uh, uh, it was not really clear how the Web and uh, the Web uh, WebAssembly WebGL and everything was going to turn out. And so I, uh, I think to remember I, and that uh, they started writing a super fast because uh, so that it would be easier for them to then pivot into a desktop app. But uh, uh, as I remember, they said that they would not do that again and will simply stick to JavaScript. Hmm. That's interesting. I think that's true of a lot of things that were written <laughs> even five years <laughs> Ten ago. Ten years ago. <laughs> yeah. So React is one concept we strangely haven't really got into hmm. too much. Paige kind of asked at, at this, but uh, I'm curious, like, how does React fit into the fit into the equation? Like, what are you using React for? You know, how is it playing a part in the, the apps that you're building? Oh, good question. Um, we really started with React uh, when we built Flux. And um, so the, our entire UI is uh, written in, in, um, in React. Originally, the schematic editor was not written using React, but uh, um, like the, the canvas of the schematic editor. But instead, that's done with old plain 3JS with classes. And um, that was written uh, uh, a long time ago. And instead, he, now uh, our PCB editor uh, it's instead uh, written using Reactory Fiber. And uh, it, so still our entire, our, our entire UI is uh, with React uh, and uh, our PCB editor is done with uh, React and Reactory Fiber and we are constantly uh, re-evaluating if that uh, was a, a good choice or not. And um, yeah, we're doing a lot of, op a lot of optimization on that uh, and especially because... Uh, React is uh, very nice and allows you to uh, build uh, like things very quickly. But of course, it has a cost, uh, both in terms of uh, performance and also a bit in terms of freedom. The second thing is a good thing because uh, it restricts your freedom in a way that you know that uh, you're going to uh, write something that is uh, easy, it's going to be easier to maintain in the future. But of course, it also creates some problems in the moment that you really want to optimize the performance further. And uh, if you are not uh, cautious enough with React, it's very easy to introduce uh, either memory leaks or uh, um, performance bottlenecks. And we worked a lot on that. So for those of our listeners and myself who are not as familiar with React 3 Fiber, can you just give us an idea of what it what it is as a library and how it's useful or how it could be useful to your web app. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the idea behind the Reactive Fiber is uh, um, it's a reconciler that allows you to um, handle 3JS in a declarative way using React. 3JS is this, for uh, going even a step further, it's um, uh, a library to create 3D applications on the web, and it relies on uh, the concept of, of a scene graph. It's a concept that is very similar to the DOM. Like in the DOM, you can have uh, a box that contains another box that contains text. In the same way, in 3JS, you can have a, a scene that contains a group, uh, and this group contains uh, a 3D model inside of it. 
And the logic is that uh, you can um, interact with it in an imperative way, like you do with uh, the DOM, and uh, remove elements, uh, add elements, append, move them. Uh, and every time that you add, for example, transformation to a node, uh, to a parent, it will, it will also move the children. So if you have a group with stuff inside of it and you move it on the left, everything that is inside that group, it will be moved on the left as well. And of course, that's a bit of a pain to handle. Because uh, as we know, the DOM, uh, it relies on uh, get elements by the uh, append children and managing that, like imagine that you have to uh, manage a a table manually with the DOM. It's a pain. It's much easier to just uh, declare how your table is going to be displayed with React and have that flow and render declaratively. Um, there is the same the same uh, uh, idea with directory fiber. Instead, in, in fact, it's using React under the hood. It's just a uh, um, a bit of adapter code that allows React to uh, know how to um, mutate the scene graph of CreateJS. And the idea is that instead of uh, instantiating a new group, adding to the scene, instantiating a D3D model, and adding it to the to the group and so on, um, directory fiber allows you to um, Use JSX to create your scenes in 3JS and uh, much more quickly develop a 3D um, uh, a 3D application on the web. It also handles setting the props. Like if you uh, set a position prop on uh, on uh, a 3D model, it's going to uh, call 3JS to change the position of the object. And so it handles a lot of stuff to you, and it allows you to write the 3D application in a very fast and concise way. And um, the people uh, at uh, Poem Address, uh, like uh, Paul Henschel, for example, they wrote a lot of very, very cool uh, um, demos that uh, became famous around the web because they they look very good and the interaction is super smooth. And you, then you look at the code and it's like 13 lines of code for uh, something that seems extremely complicated. So the, the entire... Um, um, like the entire ecosystem around directory fiber is pretty amazing. But what we discovered is that uh, um, when you actually want to build some data intensive application, like an editor or some very complex data visualization, the abs- you arrive at a point in which the abstraction is not the right one anymore mm. and you need to start working around it. So if I'm just a novice with 3JS, right, it sounds like React 3 Fiber is the way to go. Just use that. That's a big framework that sits on top of 3JS and on top of, uh, you know, the, the yeah, 3GL stuff. Yeah. And there you go. Depends what you're building. Depends what you're building. Because, like, uh, imagine that uh, um, you want to, um, like, you know that uh, with React, we are trying to reduce the, uh, the amount of stuff, uh, the amount of renders that you have. Sure. So um, um, you want to make sure that uh, when you click a button, uh, like just one render happens uh, and not your, your entire page renders every time. Unfortunately, when you build a complex application, that becomes a bit difficult to do uh, with, uh, with directory fiber because uh, uh, React cannot run at 120 frames per second. It, 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 it has necessary hover it to differ what happened and call other random functions again. So if you're trying to do, like to animate something with uh, uh, React Fiber, you know that you are uh, going against React and the React is not going to uh, be able to apply updates and at 120 frames per second. And in the same way, if you have 60,000 elements to render and you try to do that with react it's it will like internally call your render function 60,000 times it will uh, uh, um, compare the props uh, and uh, call all the use memo all 60,000 times like uh, that is eventually will not scale enough and you see that uh, you need to transition from an approach that is uh, an uh, one react component for each uh, element of my data and move to an approach that is more like uh, I have one React component that is responsible for rendering all my data at once, unfortunately. Like like we already do with virtualized lists. Normally virtualized lists, uh, even in the, uh, in the DOM nowadays, are a single component in which you pass your data to it. And then internally, it, it, it doesn't use React. It uses 
normal DOM and a lot of imperative mutations to do stuff really fast. That's the same approach, basically, that we are taking as well with, uh, with our development. Interesting. So... All right, so I, I have a question. Oh, <laughs> Paige, you go first. Okay, well, my question was, are you able to use one of the React frameworks with this? Like, can you use Next.js or, you know, any of the kind of now prescribed frameworks? Or is it kind of a homegrown solution since you're using React and React 3 Fiber and kind of some specialized use cases? If you're talking about uh, React 3 Fiber in general, you're absolutely able to use uh... Uh, frameworks. For example, I built other applications that we built, were built on top of uh, both Next.js and the Gatsby.js in the past. And um, and both uh, what happens is that uh, the uh, stuff for Reactor Fiber will not be server-side or statically rendered, but uh, it will be simply be uh, canvas and it will be run entirely on the client. And so it's actually very easy to integrate it. Uh, just plop in the component and it will uh, work immediately, I think. We also have uh, in the uh, Poemandres uh, um, uh, GitHub page some templates to use Next.js with it. So that's nice if you want uh, an example about how to use it. But uh, internally at Flux, uh, um, right now we're using React React App. We are not using a framework uh, and for mainly two reasons. The first reason is that uh, we started uh, building it a few years ago. And uh, and that moment, like everybody was using Create React app, uh, and it was it was not like right now that uh, recently the React team said that either use a framework uh, or uh, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And the second hilarious. reason is that <laughs> yeah. And the second reason is that uh, um, like even the React team said that there is a ninety nine percent of uh, the case the, of the cases uh, you want to use a framework, and we discussed about it and uh, probably. An application like ours falls in the one percent case in which you don't need a framework, because the reason why you why you use framework in your React application, think about Next or Remix, is because it allows you it gives you a lot of um, facilities and uh, like um, abstractions to work with routing forms. Um, server side of static rendering uh, and all stuff like that. But in our application, uh, we don't really have those needs. We don't have web forms uh, um, extensively. We don't have uh, a need for uh, server side or static rendering because it's like our application is literally uh, a blank HTML with a lot of JavaScript running on top of it. We don't have uh, lots of pages in which we need the tool. Um, have the user um, jump through them and maintain cache between them. So really, our application is... Uh, I think it's more like comparable to having uh, a, a virtual machine inside your tab that is running an entire operating system of sort. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. It's much more client focused and a lot less, like you said, a lot less need for server rendering, which in that case, yeah. you know, create React app is a really good option because it doesn't, it doesn't try and do the caching and the rendering and all the stuff that most of the frameworks nowadays do. So yeah, that seems, seems like a good use case for it. All right. I have a question and this is actually for the, for the whole group, because I've heard about 3JS in like various talks or whatever for many years at this point at conferences. It comes up on this podcast a little every so often, but I never have a chance to actually use the thing, right? Because, and I, I think this is probably true for the lion's share of our listeners as well, because it's not like my designer comes back and says like, oh, we're going to include a 3D model or a 3D interaction on this page. It's like, it's not in the repertoire of your average sort of web person, right? So I'm wondering if anybody here has some suggestions, maybe something cool you've seen on the web. Like, what are some ways that, like, the, these sort of 3D effects can be useful for, like, your average website? Have you seen anything on the web? Like, how, how this is, like, a very personal question. How can I start using this, right? Because it's, it's exciting stuff, but I feel like I'm inevitably just going to keep it in the back of my head but never be able to actually build anything with it. So I'm just looking, any suggestions, any ideas, I'm going to open the floor. 
you mean uh, use cases or uh, yeah. how yeah. to? Yeah, just okay. use cases. Like, what's something cool you've seen uh, on the I've web? I've got one. I've got one. This? So, uh, right around me in Oregon City is this lightsaber company. No kidding, they make lightsabers. <laughs> And okay. not, not really like sabers, obviously. <laughs> I'm, but they, I'm listening. But you go onto their site and they've got like an, a builder and then you can like kind of snap together all the pieces and then you can actually, it renders it on the fly for you and you can kind of spin it around and you can see what the hilt's going to look like and what the saber, you know, and it's, gonna, and it's, a, it's really cool, honestly. Okay. You know? And, and, and okay. it's hard to visualize that in 2D, you know, as mm-hmm. a customer, right? And so I think it probably really helps their sales that they are able to do that. I wonder, could you use this to show like a, just like a product off? Cause I'm thinking like yeah. standard, like standard, totally. like e-commerce, like, right. I'm buying a shoe. Well, it's like, mm-hmm. well, I'm looking at static images of shoes, but what if my shoe was there in 3d and I could spin it around and maybe change the color of the shoe. I like, can 100% I can tell be... you that Nike, I'm sorry, some company in the Northwest <laughs> that makes shoes has this exact thing. And yes, it does. It, it, particularly when it's a shoe that you really hyper customize you know okay. if you can get yeah. your own logo on it or you can get your own okay. like you know it, yes it's very very good for that i think that that's one use, use case in which uh, um using 3d experience on the on the web really shines um i also uh, did a lot of research uh, uh, about these and uh, the company in a company in which i worked previously because like uh, in e-commerce it does really a lot of potential uh, especially because uh, you can uh, like uh, give your company superpowers uh, with stuff like uh, showing uh, uh, customized products like uh, if you see uh, in um, among the uh, reactive fiber examples we have an example in which uh, there is the the floating shoe as we were talking before uh, with a color picker for which you can yeah. with which you can already see how the shoe is going to look and um and also, um, even stuff like, uh, imagine that, uh, you, um, you are a, a company and you're building a product, uh, like a physical product, uh, and, uh, you still haven't finished your product, but you want to sh- already show it off. You want to show it to customer. You create a 3D model of it and you put it on your website. Like even for a car, you can do that. Uh, and uh, maybe put it even in, in context uh, of, uh, uh, um, like your, mm, creating a, a, an SUV and you put it in context of uh, the wilderness uh, and uh, driving inside the forest, something like that. There are really cool things that you can do. I think that the bottlenecks there are two. One is the creation of 3D model. Of course, imagine if uh, you have a very big uh, e-commerce and you want to start building uh, a 3D model for every single product that you sell. Like that is if you want high quality 3D models, those are unfortunately not easy to do. And uh, the second bottleneck is that uh, uh, you may be um, worried that your product is not looking good enough. Because uh, um, if you want your product to look good, uh, you really have to uh, maybe have a bit of graphics processing power or artists that really know how to show it off. Like normally, um, uh, your um, the 3D models look way way better uh, if they have uh, ray tracing. But of course, that's not something that you can do on a phone. There are a lot of ways of bake <laughs> that though. Like there are a lot of tools that allows you to create a 3D model that is actually simpler. It's, it's pretty simple on the on the hardware, but it does like all the ray tracing already drawn on the textures, so that it, that it already looks good even with lower end hardware. But of course, that's um. That's a thing that really you have to uh, to do case by case for your products, and you have to have artists that are capable of doing that. Yeah, um, you can also so do the thing where you like take frames, right, and you actually like render on a serious GPU and you pre-render frames or a movie, and then you just put that on. You can like, spin it around, and they, you know, nobody it, it yeah, works on fact, low-end uh, hardware. Yeah, and in fact, uh, um, uh, an interesting thing, I think, is that like the uh, famous uh, uh, fruit company that makes computers and, <laughs> uh, for their website, uh, <laughs> I think that, that they're not using any 3D model, but yeah. they're using oh. sequences of JPGs mm-hmm. and, uh, you, um, and with alpha channels so that uh, what you're seeing is not a 3D model, but uh, it's pre-rendered stuff. 
of course, that's a bit defeats the purpose. So I think that really the value of uh, uh, having 3D on the web is when you have interactivity, like being able to customize your product uh, or even yeah. more complicated stuff. Yeah, I'm on a, a nameless swoop shoe company in the their website and I'm customizing some shoes right now. And I got to say, it's it's kind of fun. It's kind of cool. Oh, yeah. It's, it's and, and, and you get an emotional attachment to it. And yeah, yeah. You're gonna you're gonna buy those shoes, man. I know <laughs> well, it. I think also too, like I I definitely see the challenge if you're like big e-commerce and I have tons of products. Like, yeah, that's a huge challenge. But there's a lot of companies where like they have one product they sell, maybe or like a small portfolio. And I'm sure there's even if you struggle with the 3D modeling, I'm sure there are design firms out there that say like, hey ship us your stuff and we can create high quality assets for you that you can use and like bake into definitely. your website. So it's, it's definitely something you can, you can find a way uh, to, to get it done. So it's an interesting idea. <laughs> Give me some ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so Paige, you got any idea? You, well, I mean, I'm thinking of car companies and I think that I've oh, yeah. seen this on some websites is where you can design, you know, you build your car and then you can turn it around. You can look at every angle of it or close to it. Maybe it's like, you know, 90 degrees, 45 degrees, and they just kind of rotate it that way. But that would be, I mean, that would be a cool use case for it. But I'm wondering like if you are new to this or you haven't used it before, what are your recommendations for getting started? Because we're obviously not going to start by building customized shoes and cars and things <laughs> like that. So what's an easy way to get into it? <laughs> well, uh, actually, I don't agree with you because uh, um, building custom, uh, like customizable shoe or car, it's one of the simplest things that you can do like uh, programming wise, mod 3D modeling wise, absolutely not. Because of course, um, uh, building a, a, sh a shoe or a, a car 3D model is not trivial. But uh, um, then uh, what it boils down to, if you want to simply change the color of a shoe, is uh, rendering the shoe and taking the material that is the, the one that you want to change the color of and uh, setting the color value. So it, it's, I think that is, actually a good hello world project some, for someone that starts so mm. uh, if somebody wants to start doing it i think that is very cool it's very cool to just simply go into the uh, reactory fiber website and uh, look at the examples and we have a lot of cool stuff that is like very simple to do in uh, 100 lines of code uh, of code and then uh, you can already get started uh, and see how you can integrate uh, uh, 3d experiences on your website and there are a lot of uh, very other cool experiences as well. Like, for example, there is one that is like uh, um, picking your seat, uh, your uh, sitting place on a train or on, or on an airplane. Imagine being able to uh, see in 3D um, your, your train or your airplane and being able to click on mm. uh, the position that you're going to be on. Or for a cinema, that would be amazing. Imagine like uh, uh, giving the users... Uh, the ability to uh, see a preview of uh, what they will see from their uh, 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 from the movie seat and how it will affect their possibility I, of viewing a stadium too. I could totally yeah, see yeah, that. Sure. Like that's, yeah, you don't want to be behind a big post, you know. Oh man, and two D two D models of stadiums always make it so hard because you're just looking at this massive thing and you're like you have no concept of like this cheap seat up top what am i actually going to be able to see like you have no idea so so it's really interesting ideas yeah and directory fiber for building stuff like that is very amazing because uh, it provides you an abstraction that uh, as we discovered it's not really going to work uh, if you want to render 100,000 elements and changing them constantly like we're doing at flux but uh, if you want to build an experience that uh, it's not too big, it's self-contained, and it will look really good, uh, it really provides you with an amazing ecosystem of uh, libraries uh, and ready-made uh, um, materials uh, and uh, controls, interaction, everything. And yeah, check it out. Well, cool. I'm going to have to give those React 3 Fiber examples a try. That sounds really fun. TJ, I'm excited to see what you build with it too. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, I'm busy right now customizing my lightsaber based off what Jack <laughs> sent. So, oh, well, do you, you know, know I always I go to Comic Cons and I never. <laughs> well, Julio, this has been great. Is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that we think you think we should talk about or we should know about? No, I think that uh, like regarding uh, 3JS and performance, it would be really hours to talk about that but uh yeah i think that's a that's a really great introduction cool and i'm gonna check out uh chrome tracer as well because that's something that i've never heard of but it sounds really useful yeah. for figuring out why my computer's lagging <laughs> yeah all right well i think that this is the portion of the show where we move into picks and this can be websites that you've found that are interesting products that you like that you think our listeners would be interested in or shows that you're watching so tj would you like to kick us off today sure i'm gonna pick the show poker face which is Ooh. on peacock and is pretty new it's like a whodunit detective type style and the creator said that it was heavily inspired by columbo so if you've ever watched columbo back in the day which is show I used to watch with my dad all the time. So some of it is just like nostalgia for that. But the whole premise of it is they they show you the crime like to start the episode. So it's not like uh, you're not like trying to figure out who did it, but you're rather going through the eyes of the person trying to figure out how it happens. So it's kind of a unique concept. Uh, I'm three episodes in and I've had fun with it so far. So if you like those sort of detective style shows, uh, it's a pretty good one. Nice. And the name of it is... Uh, what again? Poker face. Poker, Poker face. face. Yeah, I like the actress. Like she was in some other one. She's got this great vibe. She was in the like Groundhog Day type show. What was that was really good. I can't remember the yeah. name of it though. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll have to look it up. The the other thing about the show too is that her her shtick is that she she can tell when people are lying. That's like the whole vibe behind the show. So obviously that's how she ends up dis- dis- figuring out these crimes is she can she can tell when people are lying about it. Nice. That's a good superpower to have. (laughs) All right. Jack, what have you got for us this week? Sure. So speaking of P. Manders um, and actually Daishi Kato, Daishi just released Jotai version 2, which is uh, an atomic-based state manager. Uh, Similar to like Recoil, or I think there's one other one that's also uh, atomic-based. It's very cool. You can basically take data atoms and kind of have them depend on each other. And this new uh, V2 really cleans up the interface even more than it was. I mean, I think it always was better than Recoil, and now it's even better, better than Recoil. Uh, And it also brings in a vanilla aspect that that Recoil's never had, but this other, I can't remember right offhand what the other one is called, but it had. uh, And so now you can use the same atoms with not only just re- re- React, but also in vanilla case as well. Other other frameworks, it's great. Uh, just a lot of great improvements, and it's great to see Jotai kind of picking up traction like that because I think it's a great data model. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's always exciting when things you know go to their next iteration and become even more useful than than they were. <laughs> you didn't think they could get better, and they do. <laughs> yeah, Daishi's doing great work. Honestly, nice. Shout out to him. Um, so my pick for this week is going to be a tool that I've been using quite a bit lately, which is called the Open API Generator. And in at the company that I work for, we're in the process of creating our own JavaScript library to make one of our APIs easier to use in JavaScript-based projects. And the, the tool... Open API generator is able to take the Open API spec and generate an entire JavaScript-based library out of just that spec. So it made all the models, it made all the API endpoints, it provided documentation and examples of how to actually implement the JavaScript library. Um, it's so cool that it it was able to just do all of that with a few simple commands uh, from the command line. So. If you need to build some sort of a library like that and you have an open API spec that you're using for your your API, 
um, definitely check this out because it saved us a ton of work, a ton of time, a ton of having to do it manually. And it was, I mean, it was so shockingly easy that I was really pleasantly surprised by it. <laughs> so that will be my recommendation for this week. And uh, Julio, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I'd be that uh, that kind of nerd. And my recommendation of this week is probably something that uh, uh, you will find cool but completely useless. And uh, it's a library called D86. And um, the idea behind it is that uh, it's able to emulate uh, an entire computer, an um, mm. Intel X86 computer on a browser. And uh, so, like, you can uh, simply import the library. I've uh, recently published uh, on NPM, uh, like, um, a uh, version that you can use with a, uh, with a package manager and a bundler. And uh, you fire up the library, you load the, the like, you give it, you give it um, the image file for the hard drive, and it will simply be able to load something like Linux or even Windows XP. And it will completely run on, on your browser. And uh, with it, I was trying to do some strange stuff because I'm fascinated with uh, old, old computer and technologies uh, and radio computing. And I was trying to uh, like uh, build uh, um, a library that allows you to use React to build uh, user interfaces inside of uh, Windows 98, like to give it that, uh, uh, that retro style, but not uh, just CSS that makes it look like, but it actually sends common to the virtual machine and uh, in creates UI elements. It's completely useless, but it's cool. <laughs> I love it. That sounds fun. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Awesome. So, Julio, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you online? Well, yeah, uh, I, have, uh, I have Twitter. You can find me at uh, Julio Zauza or uh, uh, I have GitHub. I think there is my email there. Or, uh, yeah, Twitter is probably the best option. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining us today and talking to us about React 3 Fiber and Flux and all the cool stuff that's available. Um, it's been really fun having you. Thank you for having me. That's been a pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> great. See you next week. Yeah, see you on the next episode.